Yeah, if you want to open up to Acts chapter 6, we are doing a small series that we call uh, Acts from 20,000 Feet. Uh, About four years ago, we did one called uh, Acts from 30,000 Feet, and it was basically the whole book of Acts in one day, and uh, we're taking uh, five and a half chapters per Sunday uh, this will go through uh, the next three weeks till uh, the team gets back from Nepal. And so what we're doing is we are surveying the book of Acts um, in this new year. Uh, we started at New Year's Eve last week, and then the first few weeks of 2018, we want to look at the early church in her innocence, in her infancy, And we want to look at the descriptions of the early church and and see, Lord, how can we apply what we see in 2018, Prineville? Uh, And we want to look at the prescriptions of the early church and and things that are commanded and called for, uh, things that are not optional uh, for the Christian life. And so as we do that, um, I was reminded this morning of uh, a couple, well, I guess it was a couple months ago now. Uh, I went to the eye doctor. It was time to get a new prescription, get some new specs, you know. And, uh, you know, that is one of the most awkward exams. Maybe not one of the most. Uh, <laughs> for me, I'm still young and innocent. But, um, but uh, you know, you're there and you got a guy and he's, you know, he's, he's right up against your face and he's breathing on you. <laughs> Of course, I went to Walmart and the guy's got a big mustache and you can feel it tickling you, you know, and you're like, do you, do you need to be this close, you know? And, uh, you know, and it's kind of a fun exam, actually, because he does this thing where he's like, number one or number two, number two or number one, number one or number two, you know, and he's like, he's putting all these different lenses in front of your eyes and, you know, you're like, and the comedian Brian Regan makes the joke that there's nothing more stressful than that eye exam, you know, you know, because... There's so much weighing on your answer in that moment, you know, Uh, number one, no, number two, no, number one, number two, number two, you know, and if you mess it up, you walk out with Coke bottle glasses, you know, with all kinds of computer chips in them and wires and antennas hanging off. And you're like, I should have said number two, you know, Uh, that's his joke. But, um, and, and, but, you know, to have those different lenses, you see different things, different ways, depending on the glasses that you're using. And as we're looking at the book of Acts, I want to encourage you to kind of flip-flop between different lenses as you're reading, if you will. Um, I want you to, to look in the next three weeks, uh, four if you count today, um, at the book of Acts with our purpose statement as a church in mind, okay? So we have it written on the back of our wall. We have it up on the screen today. It's written on our wall, our purpose statement as a church, our vision statement, you know, just that when we leave this church, we just have a reminder what we're about as we go out into the world. Um, And so think of this as we look at the book of Acts, that uh, we exist to make disciples in our city and of all nations who are sent out to proclaim and embody the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. So that's, this is what justifies our existence as a church. You know, we, we have a mission, we have a plan, um, we're here for a reason, and this is it. This is just kind of a, a concentrated pill form of the New Testament that you can swallow there. Um, so kind of, as we're reading today, kind of pop that lens in there and say, oh, I see it, I see it. Um, And then we have our mission statement as a church, and a mission statement is something that 
uh, really says how. How are we going to do the purpose? How, how does this take place? How is this accomplished? Uh, and so in looking at the book of Acts, we've written this mission statement for Calvary Chapel of Crook County. <clears throat> As a local fellowship of redeemed followers of Jesus Christ, the members of Calvary Chapel of Crook County regularly gather under the authoritative Christ-centered word with persistent spirit-led prayers in order to purposefully love God and each other while fervently or boldly evangelizing the world, allowing the truth of the gospel to define who we are and how we live. And so today, as we look through the book of Acts, you know, we're going to look at about seven different things there um, from our mission statement that we draw out of the book of Acts. You know, I think of the cereal box as a kid, you know, and, and there's the little code on the back and you put those kind of 3D glasses on, you know, and you see the words like categories or, what, you know, something like that. And, uh, and certainly you got to be careful with that. You know, we don't just want to be like, oh, I'm going to come at the book with a uh, totally heretical position and be like, oh, you know, uh, pushing our position into it. That's called eisegesis. That's dangerous and, and wrong. Um, we want to do exegesis. We want to pull out of the text as we go through the book of Acts. And I believe as we do, um, you're going to see these things really at foundation of what the early church was and what we should be today as well. Then the final lens that I would ask you to kind of flip on as we're reading through the book today um, are kind of our New Year's resolution questions that we went through last week. And, and they're going to be referred to maybe not as intensely uh, point by point throughout the next few weeks. Um, but uh, these New Year's resolution questions, uh, kind of ask yourselves, well, how did the book of Acts do this? How did the early church do these things? Um, and, uh, and the first question was, how will I fill my mind with truth in 2018? How will I fill my mind with truth? So some sub points are, how will I read God's word? How will I memorize God's word? How will I learn God's word from others? And this was something we saw just incredibly last week as we went through the book of Acts. We have uh, men of God who know the word of God. They're preaching the word of God. We're going to see as we go through Acts, people sitting under the word of God, uh, people who have filled their heart with the word of God, had it stamped into their heart, and it just comes out as they're talking and evangelizing. Uh, they, they had filled their mind with God's truth. And so the Bible reading plan and memorization plans, reading to our kids, we talked about that quite a bit last week, so we won't spend a ton on it uh, this week. Question number two was, how will I fuel my affections for God? So how will I worship in 2018? How will I pray? How will I fast? How will I give? Um, and we just spoke of last week, the worship in the early church. Um, there were prayers of thanksgiving. There were prayers and worship, oftentimes after times of persecution. Uh, the early church was a praying church. We looked at that last week. And thus, we as Calvary Chapel of Crook County, we're a praying church. And we spend extra time in concentrated prayer together as a church. And we urge you to come, take two nights of your month to come to the Pulse and be a part of that. And I know, I know I've been there where, you know, oh, it's a night or it's like an hour of prayer. And, and I'm just telling you, just come, 
believing the Lord's able to meet you. You know, Charles Spurgeon said that if your heart beats cold in prayer, then come and hammer it hot on the anvil of prayer. And it's so true. You come and you're just like, oh, an hour of prayer. I got this to do, this to do. And it's just like, and you just lay your heart, cold heart there, and the Lord just, and pretty soon it's red hot and you're participating and you're just overjoyed to be in the presence of the Lord and praying with the saints. So how will I fast? We're going to see that a bit today. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, in the book of Acts and as a church, we're a fasting church. You might want to just get up and leave now. Um, but we, uh, we've also had our hearts hammered hot on the anvil of fasting. Um, we fast for approximately a week, anywhere from five to seven days, depending on what the Lord leads once it's been three days. Uh, but we, we fast in the spring and give our year over to the Lord. Um, we fast on Wednesdays oftentimes when big things are before the church and before leadership. And the Nepal team's been fasting on Wednesdays. We're a fasting church. Um, and uh, we're a giving church. And man, is that not, you know, uh, that volcano? It was a Himalayan mountain. Now it's a volcano there just shooting up. Just the resources of God that he's brought through you guys to help uh, fuel the mission of God. Um, and it just shows that you have the barometer of your hearts, Calvary Chapel, is it's in a healthy place. It's been said that the, the, barometer, the barometer of the heart is our pocketbook. And uh, praise the Lord, it just shows health in our church. So uh, we'll see a little bit of that today as we go through the book, uh, through chapter 11. Uh, the third question was, how will I share God's love as a witness in the world? Um, you can't read the book of Acts without seeing major missionary movement. We're going to spend some time on that. It's so clear as we see the acts of the apostles and as we see the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And it's been said that the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. So any spirit-filled church will be a missionary church. Amen? I don't know. Uh, number four. Some of those preachers do that. Amen. And people are like, I don't know about that one. Then feel free to just abstain. Um, how will I show God's love as a member of a church? So uh, this was one that we saw quite a bit of in the first five and a half chapters. Um, and we'll see it touched on uh, throughout the next five chapters that we'll look at today. Um, but uh, it was David Platt who said, the Bible flies in the face of American individualism and church consumerism, prompting follow followers of Christ to ask the question, am I, a, am I committed to a local church where I'm sharing life with other followers of Christ in mutual accountability under biblical leadership for the glory of God? Platt goes on to say, to follow Christ is to love his church. It is biblically, spiritually, and practically impossible to be a disciple of Christ, much less make disciples of Christ, apart from total devotion to a family of Christians. Matthew Henry wrote centuries ago, those who are joined to Christ are added to the disciples of Christ and join with them. When we take God for our God, we must take his people to be our people. As we saw in the book of Acts in chapter 2, we're going to see it even today, and John Stott says it well, he didn't save the people without adding them to the church. And he didn't add them to the church without saving the people. 
Matthew Henry goes on to say, Peter's chapter 2 sermon on the day of Pentecost, the account of the miraculous effusion of the Spirit, which is designed to awaken them all to embrace the faith of Christ and then to join themselves to the church. <clears throat> now, as we would look at the book of Acts and even the first five chapters, we notice these things about being part of a local church body. Listen to me as I point them off. The regular gathering was daily, and especially the first day of the week, welcome to Sunday, <clears throat> with the local church. Salvation was preached from a local church. The saved were added to a local church. Great care for individuals came through a local church. Leadership was given over the local church, elders and deacons. The teaching of doctrine and instruction came from local church leaders. Giving was given to the leaders, and then they would give uh, it, distribute it as they saw the need. Um, accountability was to a local church. Lives lived in application of the teachings of the leaders was lived out in a local church context. Prayer took place with the local church. Gifts and resources were used to build up a local church. Missionary ventures were sent out from the local church. Dr. Lightfoot, Lightfoot explains it. Dr. Lightfoot, what a great name. You know, as we're running on the stadium steps with the Nepal team, we've got packs on, really heavy packs, and we're trying to get in shape. And man, I am like <laughs> going up those stairs. And people have commented before, like, man, you're going to kill those stairs. And, uh, and I've been trying to get lighter and a little more spry, you know. And then uh, each time we go up the, track, up the hill, uh, we have a different person lead us. And Kimmy was leading us this week. And she's like, okay, guys, you do as fast and as light as you can going up those stairs. I'm like, no. And you're just like, pop, pop, pop. and you know, Kimmy's just like, pop, 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 pop. and I'm like, <laughs> so one day I will be called Dr. Lightfoot, but it's not this year. But he explains it. There's five minutes of my sermon. I'll never get back. Just set the clock back five minutes. It'll be fun. He explained it, they kept together in several companies or congregations according to their languages and nations or other associations. It brought them and kept them together and thus joining together because it was apart from those that believed not and because it was in the same profession and practice of the duties of religion, they are said to be together, epitoato in the Greek. They associated together and both expressed and increased their mutual love. You know, as you commit to a local church, it expresses your individual love and it, uh, it increases your mutual love. And so with that said, with a lens just on, as we read through the book of Acts, I just ask you to look at the early church and their involvement, committal, dedication to that local body, okay? Let me read something that I wrote out last week. <clears throat> Since you've been saved, have you been added to a church so that you can live in the purpose of God for you as a Christian? Living with one another, growing with one another, serving, accountable to and for one another, 
learning, discipling, disciplining, growing, giving, receiving, submitting, yielding, edifying, and building. Perhaps this year you'd take the step in clarifying your relationship to this church by becoming a church member. Perhaps you'd take the time to go through an afternoon and study the Bi- what the Bible has to say about the local church and what your role is in it. Perhaps you'd affirm your statement of faith to Christian doctrine and be recognized in front of this church that this is your home and that you're stepping up as part of the family. Now, we don't hammer on church membership a lot here. It's a tool that God has led us about three years ago to do as a body to help bring clarity of what our role is as part of this local church, what God's heart is for us. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a bunch of ecclesiology, studying the local church. We don't hammer on it a lot, but we do value it. And so I'd encourage you, if you call this your home, this is your family, you can affirm Christian Orthodox faith and practice, I'd encourage you to step up with dedication and become a church member. If not, you're certainly welcome to keep coming here. We'll love you just the same. And, uh, and I would just encourage you to at least, at the very least, as we go through the book of Acts, just say, all right, Lord, what do you have for me in stepping in and pressing in to a local body and here at Calvary Chapel, Crook County. You're here today. I hope that might mean that, that you may be interested to be a part of our church. So moving on, out of six questions, the fifth one is, how will I spread God's glory among all people? Of course, that missionary venture of the book of Acts of the early church, we'll see that a ton today. And sixth, ask yourself this in the new year, how will I make disciple makers among a few people? Making disciples. So that's part of our, our mission, our vision as a church is that we are disciples who make disciples. Again, to quote Platt before we dig into the word here, no child of God is intended by God to be sidelined as a spectator of the Great Commission. Every child of God has been invited by God to be on the front lines of the supreme mission in all of history. Every disciple of Jesus has been called, loved, created, and saved to make disciples of Jesus, who make disciples of Jesus, who make disciples of Jesus until the grace of God is enjoyed and the glory of God is exalted among every people group on the planet. So let's get into it. Acts chapter 6. We're actually going to read uh, Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 and then do just a, an observation and application of that text. Uh, So chapter six, you can flip there in your Bible. It'll be on the screen. Let me read it. It says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose from uh, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freed men, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, uh, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Chapter 7. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no children, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivering him out of all his troubles and gave him favor in the wisdom and the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people, verse 15. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Verse 20, at this time, Moses was born and he was well-pleasing to God and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up their own son as their own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. Now, when he was 40 years old, he came into, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptians. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did this neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled 
and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. As he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard the groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out and he'd showed them wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. This is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness and the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us. Verse 39, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. Then in the hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying, Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As, as for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt? We do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the day of David, who found, uh, who found, <laughs> who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. Verse 47, but Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So we'll pause in the reading. We'll come back in just a little bit to chapter 8. But certainly at the end of chapter 6 and through the chapter of 7, we can ask one of our uh, New Year's resolution questions of how will I share God's love as a witness in the world? And we see one of the first deacons stepping up 
in doing just that. In fact, we see a mark of Stephen's life given to us in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And it's an example to us that we will share God's love like he, by the Spirit, wisdom, faith, grace, and great power. In fact, look at Acts chapter 6, verse 8, that Stephen was full of faith, full of power. He did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, Luke had already introduced Stephen. We looked at him last week as one of the seven deacons. Incredible qualities given to this man, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. That's in 6.3 and um, 6.5, and now in 6.8, full of God's grace and God's power. As one commentator said, Luke, in writing this, evidently gave people an impression of plentitude in Stephen. I mean, this guy was class A for sure. What a great deacon, this Stephen. Uh, One man wrote, grace and power form a striking combination. It was was G. Campbell Morgan. Grace and power form a striking combination of sweetness and strength merged into one personality. What an awesome Christian this Stephen was. One personality of sweetness and strength. But notice his evangelical ministry was accompanied with, with great signs and wonders. And friends, if I could ask you to be praying over the next three weeks with us as we go to Nepal, I believe that as we're going up into these unreached people groups who speak languages that rarely find translators, that the gospel being accompanied with signs and wonders is crucial and critical. Please be praying with us that we would be bold to be led by the Lord in praying for different miracles and wonders to take place, not in place of the word of God and not in place of the gospel, but alongside of the gospel to bear witness to the gospel and validate, show validation to the gospel. John Stott said, so far signs and wonders have been credited by Luke only to Jesus and the apostles. Now for the first time, others are said to perform them. Some conclude that Stephen and Philip are special cases, but because the apostles had laid their hands on them in chapter 6, therefore including them within their apostolic ministry, and because they occupied a special place in salvation history, a transition from Jewish movement to world mission. But this cannot be proved. Stephen and Philip are certainly witness to the fact That even if, according to Luke, signs and wonders were mainly limited to the apostles, that this restriction was not absolute. And so as we go forward, we go forward saving, Lord, however your plan with signs and wonders are to be done, we certainly in America here in this church don't see as much of what we see in the book of Acts. I'll give you that. But as I've been studying this last week and even reading some 15th century Puritans like Matthew Henry, they say, guys, as we're going forth to reach these unreached people, it's crazy how they had an idea about unreached people. He said, be bold to even, if you will, speak in tongues as they did in the book of Pentecost on the day of Pentecost so that those who don't know the language will hear of the marvelous works of God as they did in Acts chapter 2. Pray about that with us as we go forward because we have had times where we have prayed for healings and we've seen people healed. In fact, I just found we're going to go up through Bedour and we're going to see a young man who works in a hotel who had a major limp, a major limp the first time we went through Bedour. And the, the three times we've gone there, we've seen that he walks without a limp after we've prayed for healing. 
We've had pe- people that we've felt were demon-possessed, and we've spent time praying over them. And so pray for us as we go forth that we would, as Stephen, following in a description with faith, be accompanied with signs and wonders as we preach the gospel. Henry did say they were endued with miraculous powers for the furtherance of the gospel. Intercede with us for that over the next three weeks. In Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen's ministry filling his heart with the word of God. He spoke forth the word of God. Chapter 7 verse 2, it said, Brethren and fathers, listen. He started this whole big speech about the Old Testament with the words, listen up. I'm about to speak forth the word of God. And as you've noticed, as we just read it, Stephen told the Old Testament history of Israel up through the time of Moses. He told the story of God. He told the history of God. And it's been said, history is his story. And the Jews would always stop to listen to the story of Israel. They were mad at him and then they just let him full on have this big old sermon time, you know, where he's just speaking forth the story of Israel. Now, as we read it, many students of Stephen's speech give it criticism, calling it rambling, saying that was dull and incoherent. Okay. George Bernard Shaw wrote a book, Androlocles and the Lion, and in his introduction, he called Stephen a quite intolerable young speaker and a tactless, conceited bore. He describes him as having, having delivered an oration to the council in which he inflicted on them a tedious sketch of the history of Israel which, which, with which they were presumably all well acquainted as he. Others have found his speech lacking not only in interest but in point. A man named Diblius, for instance, wrote of the irrelevance of most of his speech. A man named William Neal, though, disagrees and calls Stephen's speech a subtle and skillful proclamation of the gospel. A subtle and skillful proclamation of the gospel. Why was it so subtle and skillful? Because he was answering the question of the high priest, are these things so? Are you really tackling Israel's history in the temple? And so Stephen answers that question in a way that John Stott says he had a mind that had evidently soaked up the Old Testament for his speech is like a patchwork of allusions to it. And so as we look at this next year and our time in the word, soaking up the truth of God, memorizing scripture, let's remember Stephen, a guy who'd soaked up the Old Testament and when he would speak, everything he said was just picture and picture and picture of the word of God. Let's let that be what our conversations with one another are soaked with. What did Stephen's ministry also, was it accompanied with, with great faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, with the word of God, but also with persecution? You see, as we read the book of Acts, we ought not forget that lens in front of our eyes. It's very true of a disciple of Jesus Christ that you cannot be greater than your master. If our Lord was persecuted, then those that follow the Lord will be persecuted. Look at Acts 7.54. The language is so harsh. When they heard Stephen preaching, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth 
Sometimes I look out there and it's not too different out there. I'm like, oh my goodness, that was the wrong way. Okay. Yeah, you know? And then chapter 7, verse 57 says, And so they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Very interesting. As we get into chapter 8, the witnesses of this stoning laid their clothes down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now this meant that the the tradition, the custom was that whoever was in charge, and in this case, whoever was in charge of a stoning or a murder or, or this judgment, that everyone took their coats down to the one who gave the green light to the execution. So who was the one who was in charge of the murder of one of the first deacons of the early church, a man of great power and of the spirit and of faith and wisdom, Saul of Tarsus, who we're going to read about in chapter 9. But we're in chapter 8, moving right along. Aren't you guys excited going through the book of Acts? I'm stoked. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he was astonished with them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they'd come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he'd fallen upon none of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, 
Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you've spoken may come upon me. So when they testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south toward the, uh, go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him spreading, uh, reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place, the scripture, which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and passed through. He preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And so as we get into chapter one, I want to refer us to question number five of our resolutions. How will I spread God's glory among all the peoples? Now, as you look at verse 1 of chapter 8, at that time there arose a great persecution against the church, which is at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. If you look at verses 4 and 5, it says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So there's this scattering that's taking place, a, a, a mad scatter which is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. If you go back, we looked at 8.1, now we're going to look at 1.8. Okay, so go back to Acts 1.8, where Jesus says, kind of a great commission of the book of Acts, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now notice, we've got Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Everything that's happened in the book of Acts up till chapter 8 had been part of the first ring of Jesus's three-ringed plan of mission, local, regional, global. So up till chapter 8, everything's been happening locally in Jerusalem. Chapters 1 through 7 has showed us a church in Jerusalem that is staying in Jerusalem, its hometown. And with that, most of its people were staying there. We're not even being witnesses. Acts chapter 5 verse 13 says that no one dared join the apostles, but they did esteem them highly. 
So the early local church was staying in Jerusalem and letting the apostles do all the groundwork. But in chapter 8, verse 1, we see a sovereign work of God in using events to further his divine purposes. That he uses persecution against the local church to get the church out of their comfort zone, out into the region, so they can be part of harvesters in the harvest field. It's been said what happened here by, by Saul's persecution that Saul went and he kicked a bonfire trying to put it out. He kicked the bonfire in Jerusalem. It's been said kicking a bonfire doesn't put the bonfire out. It releases embers into the surrounding brush, which causes the fire to spread further. That's exactly what happens. Saul is there breathing threats against the local church and he stomps on Stephen and he stomps on women and children and he drags them out of their houses and that doesn't put out the fire of evangelism. What that does is spreads and scatters the embers. Justin Martyr said, no one makes us afraid or leads us into captivity as we've set our faith on Jesus. For that we are beheaded and crucified and exposed to beasts and chains and fire and all other forms of torture. It is plain that we do not forsake the confession of our faith. But the more things of this kind which happen to us, the more are there others who become believers through the name of Jesus. So the enemy's plan is to try to squash it through, through persecution, through torture, through killings. And we see that that only causes more and more and more. It's so different than our economy in this world, isn't it? Persecution causes more evangelism, causes more conversion. Tertullian spoke to Roman authorities when he was being persecuted, persecuted and he said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. For the seed of the church is the blood of Christians. Tertullian, with great boldness, essentially said, we Christians multiply whenever we're mown down by you. Kind of like a weed, right? Sure, that's how the Jews and the Romans thought of it back then. The blood of Christians is seed. St. Jerome said, the church of Christ has been founded by the shedding of its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. And Charles Spurgeon said, never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sailed so gloriously long as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever going to conquer this world for Christ. Friends, in one week, eight of us from Oregon are going to Nepal one of the darkest unreached nations in this world. 
where if being caught proselytizing, there's a five-year prison sense lickety split. So be praying for us. Not a lot happens against trekkers and tourists, but it's a very real thing in front of us. And not only us, but people that would receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, Nepali converts have a two-week life expectancy from the point of when they're baptized. So we need to pray for the early church, or pray for the church in Nepal, rather. But we don't pray that persecutions would stop. We pray that those Nepalis would have strong backs to endure persecution because the blood of the martyrs is seen. And so in Acts chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, we have the preaching of the gospel, again, accompanied with miracles and deliverances, and it brings great joy to the city. Check out verse 6, 12, and 14 with me. The early church converts were people who heeded the things spoken by Philip. So it's, it's people who are willing to heed the Bible, okay? And believe Philip as he preached. So heed and believe, and verse 14, and receive the word of God. So as you'll notice, our mission statement, the, the local body at Calvary Chapel, who are we? You want to be a part of the church? You've got to be a redeemed follower of Jesus. Before you're a part of the universal church and join in with the Ugandans and the Russians and the Sudanese, whatever, you can't be a part of it unless you've been redeemed and born again, unless you've heeded the word, believed the preacher, received the word of God. Heed, believe, receive. Gotta like it. In chapter 8, verse 25, Peter and John testified and preached of the word of the Lord. And notice, you got to love it. On their way, they preached in all the outlying villages in the regions of Samaria. So this regional ministry, it was local, it was Jerusalem, and then they were scattered by persecution. And then they just started preaching the gospel in the, in the region, in the counties of Judea, Samaria, just outside of Jerusalem. You got to love, they preached in outlying villages. This is similar to the current and possible village ministries that are happening at our church this day and this year. We have ministries that we've sent out to Lapine. We have ministry going on in Polina. The Lord's opening up a door in Polina with Travis and, and the work that's happening there at the church in Polina. The villages in the outlying area. In Seneca. Going to Seneca and, and preaching and ministering to the teeny tiny little church there in one of the coldest places in the United States. That, that came out in an article. That 20 consecutive days of negative 54. It's like up in the record. So, so they need Jesus there, right? Outreach going on with Calvary Chapel Burns to Seneca. And this last year we saw a village ministry going up to John Day from Seneca to John Day. And then at the same time we come back through in our circuit preaching through Dayville where there's a need and a ministry taking place. Through Mitchell where there's the need of gospel proclamation and this mission and this purpose happening in our region. One of my heroes, and I just re-downloaded his Kindle book, uh, is David Brainerd, who was alive at the time of the uh, Revolutionary War. 
and he was going to Yale, and he was kicked out of Yale because he stood up against heresy being taught at that university. And he went on to go and get a horse and just start going up through the Native American villages and preaching the gospel, and revival happened among the Native Americans over there on the East Coast. And he died at like age 26 from a horrible disease, just painful. Um, John, uh, Jonathan Edwards. I got a little file cabinet in there. I just have to... Yeah, Jonathan Edwards was a dear friend and helped compile his biography and his diary. And he wrote of David Brainerd, a circuit preacher, on his horse, riding around the villages, preaching the gospel. You guys, let's not get myopic as a church in 2018 and just get so focused on us. We've got to be going out. We've got to be spreading it. In Prineville, we can't stay here. Spirit of God and a spirit-filled church leads us to the outlying areas. To Madras, as Jeremy and, and Jason and Katie are going up, the Lukers are going up to, uh, to Madras this year to start a church and begin preaching the gospel and feeding the people in Madras. Guys, let's not get our, our roots down too deep. The Holy Spirit is a sending spirit. Be willing to be sent out like Philip. Now, awesome that Philip had this regional ministry. It continues as he's told by an angel to head west of Jerusalem to Gaza. He isn't told why. He's told he needs to leave the happening place where revival is happening and go to the desert. Now, Philip doesn't question. He just goes. Note, in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, Philip, who's a deacon, has a nickname of Philip the Evangelist. In Acts chapter 8, verse 27 through 29, the reason for this desert journey was an Ethiopian eunuch in charge of Queen Candace's treasury. In chapter 8, verse 30, we see that the eunuch is reading a scroll of Isaiah's passage, chapter 53, which is prophesying of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And man, you can't get a more perfect divine appointment. As this eunuch is reading, Philip hops up on the running boards of this chariot and asks if he understands what he's reading. And the dude says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So Philip explains it to him, beginning in Isaiah 53 and using the rest of the scriptures, he knew the Christ-centered word. Guys, this is something that God has for you. He wants you to know the Bible. He wants you to know the prophecies about Jesus. He wants you to know if someone said, you don't even know it's Isaiah 53, but it begins to read this little section that the eunuch was reading, you would be able to go, it's the prophet Isaiah, it's chapter 53, it's about the suffering servant Jesus. The Jews have cut it out of the of the Old Testament today. They're forbidden to read it. And if you go to them and read it to them, they begin to wonder why it's been cut out. And Jews today are being saved in Israel because it's been hidden from them. And they're getting saved reading about Jesus. And they know this can only be speaking of Jesus. Now I see that. And for you as Christians, I've been to Israel. I've been staying near the Sea of Galilee. I sat next to a Jew from Holland who hadn't been told how the scriptures point to Jesus. I sat there, I reasoned with him, I preached the gospel to him. He's like, oh man, how could this be? How could this be? How could this be? He goes off to bed. We show up the next morning in the hostel or in the hotel, there by the Sea of Galilee where Jesus preached to the disciples. And I sat there with him and he goes, the things that you spoke to me last night have really been sinking in. You know? And I go, so are you, you know, uh, what are you going to do with that? He's like, I just got to keep thinking. I've just got to keep thinking. No more keep thinking. It's Jesus. Follow after Jesus. But you can know the Old Testament and you can preach from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I want to point on something here in Acts chapter 8 in this beautiful Ethiopian eunuch in the desert experience. Notice as Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 8 verse 36, as they went down the road, they came to some water. 
And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Let me just tell you this. If you're ever sharing Jesus with somebody, it couldn't go more smoothly than this. <laughs> like, oh, you know, okay, there's a chariot. Go over, take the chariot. You know, I'm probably going to get shot, you know, running after it. But then you hop on the running boards. Dude's already reading the Bible. Asks for someone to explain it to him. And you pass water, and he's like, well, why wouldn't I? And you're like, oh, seriously? Come on. Like, this is easy stuff here. Okay, give me a challenge, Lord. No. Uh, and so he says, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And, and so today, you guys, Jeremy texted me this morning. He goes, he's getting ready to teach in the weeks to come. And he says, man, going through the book of Acts with a fine-tooth comb, getting ready to teach, you can't escape baptism in the book of Acts. That baptism was something that was not optional for Christians. Now, sure, you don't need to be baptized in order to get saved. But as a believer, it's implied, why wouldn't you? It's one of the first steps of obedience as a Christian. It's to be baptized. And so I, I just wonder if you've noticed, maybe a lens flicked down while you're reading. You're like, I keep, that lens keeps flicking down in front of my eyes about baptism. You know, you know flick, oh, ah, it, it. okay, we're reading it. Oh, here's baptism again, chapter 8, you know. I wonder if there's been a lens, too, about the baptism with the Holy Spirit that keeps flicking down over, you know. But anyways, pop that one back up. Pop down the one about baptism for a second, would you? You still with me? Tracking with me? No? Maybe? A little bit? Yeah, Shannon is? Okay. So this is a question for you today. Here you are, you've been in the Bible, someone's been explaining it to you, and lo and behold, bloop, bloop, what do we have here? Water. And the question is asked, here is water, what hinders you from being baptized? What's hindered you from being baptized? And, and we see Philip gives the answer. He says, if you believe with all your heart, then you may. Believe with all your heart what? Well, the, the Ethiopian eunuch says it. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, by him saying that, he's saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant of the passage of Isaiah 53, that he came and he bore on himself the sins of the world. I believe that Jesus is, in the, is the Son of God, and I believe that my sins have been taken upon him at the cross. Like you've told me as you preached to me, Philip. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. I believe he's the Son of God. So here's the question for you today. Here is water. What hinders you from being baptized? There are a score of things that get in our way that I believe are just the devil wanting you to not be obedient. Well, I've got my Sunday best on today. I got an extra level of hair gel in my hair today. That'll just oil up the water and be embarrassing, you know. You know, oh, my grandma's not here, and she would just really like to see this moment. Like, show me that in the Bible, all right? I'm embarrassed to be seen as a Christian in front of people. Like, if you're embarrassed to be seen as a Christian in front of people, I would wonder if you really do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because it changes you. It's so impactful. It's so radical. That, that you've come to that place to say it. Here's water. What hinders you from being baptized? We're going to give a time at the end of the service today for baptism. And I would just let you take the next 10, 15 minutes to just say, Lord, do you, do you have me be baptized today? 
And he would say, well, do you believe with all your heart? And you would say, if you do, I believe with all my heart, Jesus is the son of God. He died for my sins. He took my sins upon him that I could be clean, that I could be made new. Then I would say, come forward to the waters today and be baptized. At the end of Acts chapter 8, verse 40, Philip goes back through and he starts his own circuit preaching ministry. And then in Acts chapter 9, and you're going to have that little lens flicked down today, uh, it's going to show baptism again, so get ready for it. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters of him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if they found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you shall be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground with his eyes were open. He saw no one, but they led him to the hand, by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you in the road as you came, he sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he'd received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road, and that he'd spoken to him, and how he'd preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus." So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. 
And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplying. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelled in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who'd been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Gotta love that one. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they'd washed her, they laid her in the upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, And the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he'd come, they brought him to the upper room with all the windows stood by, all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened up her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. So incredible to read of the persecutor from chapter 8, who was breathing threats against the church uh, in Jerusalem. He scattered the church to be evangelists in the then-known region of Judea and Samaria. Now he's converted, and he's a Christian preaching the gospel. You know, the world has no explanation for Saul's conversion. A persecutor of the faith who became a preacher of the faith. A legalistic follower of the law becoming one of the world's greatest preachers of grace. A man who was vicious against Christ becoming vocal and vibrant for Christ. It was said that Saul was going to Damascus to arrest uh, Jesus But here Jesus arrests Saul. It's there in chapter 9 that Spurgeon would say, Paul was a great man, and I have no doubt that on the way to Damascus, he rode a very high horse. But a few seconds sufficed to alter the man. How soon God brought him down. The men who are the hardest fall the hardest. But we see Saul fall, and he'll become Paul. Thank you. That wasn't even planned. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for those great... Okay, anyways. We see that there was this chapter 9, verse 31 and 32. We see that there were defined local churches, churches in Judea, Galilee, Samaria, that these local churches had peace and were edified. They would walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and churches were multiplied. That there were specific groups of saints, verse 32, who dwelt in Lydda. Saints at Joppa, verse 36. With specific saints like Tabitha, who had the same nickname I had in high school, Dorcas. This woman was full of good work. She was serving in that local church in Lydda. She did charitable deeds in that local church. It's in chapter 9 that we can see how can I make disciple makers among a few people. Well, in chapter 8, we see Philip making disciples of the Ethiopian eunuch who would then go on to make disciples. Listen to this. According to the 2007 national census, Christians make up 62.8% of Ethiopia's population. 
This is in agreement with the updated CIA World Factbook, which states that Christianity is the most widely practiced religion in Ethiopia. According to the latest, latest CIA Factbook figure, Muslims constitute 32.8% uh, of the population. Orthodox history has a long, sorry, Orthodox Christianity has a long history in Ethiopia dating back to the first century and is dominant in northern and central Ethiopia. So what do we see? We see Philip going out to make disciples, even in a one-time encounter, witnesses, trains, equips, Ethiopian eunuch who goes off, and what does he do when he gets back? The whole nation is changed by one man. That was back in chapter 8. I apologize. We do want to move forward, and we are moving forward. We see that Barnabas, well, let's go back a little bit further. We see that Ananias takes great length to go to the street called Straight and to disciple and to help this new believer in infancy, Saul, as he's blind with scales on his eyes. We see Barnabas then later on in chapter 9, verse 25, going and taking special care to encourage the apostle Paul, even when everyone else didn't believe that he was really a Christian. Barnabas went out of his way, the son of encouragement, to encourage. We see that right after that, Paul, in verse 27 of chapter 9, preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. And then in verse 29, spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. So two times there, it says that Paul was a bold proclaimer of Jesus. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say about this kind of bold heart. Now I charge every Christian here to be speaking boldly in Jesus' name, according as he has opportunity, and especially to take care of this tendency in our flesh to be afraid, which leads practically to endeavors to get off easy and to save ourselves from trouble. Fear not, be brave for Christ, live bravely for him who died lovingly for you. Chapter 10 and 11, let's stand together, we'll read it. I know you're uh, getting sleepy on me and you're ready to go. You think you're ready to go. I'm not. Let's keep going. There was a, some of you, your legs just locked up on you. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God and all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people. He prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when an angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he'd explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him, let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision that he'd seen meant, 
Behold, the men who'd been sent, Cornelius, had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down and the men who'd been sent to him from, from Cornelius and said, Yes, I'm he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and he called together his relatives and close friends as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down in his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he was talking with him, he went in and found many who'd come together. And then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent. I asked them, For what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and call Simon here, whose, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. That's my sound. Him God raised up on the third day, and Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Uh, rap, yep, yep, no. Him God raised up, verse 40, and raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many who came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. Jump down to chapter 11. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised hands and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, 
I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals on the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all who were drawn up into heaven, and all were drawn up again into heaven. Verse 11. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six men were accompanying me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he'd seen an angel standing in the house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and upon us as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. And as we get to verse 20, if the worship team could come on up. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they'd come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Could we? <laughs> then he came and had seen the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all. That with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul and when he'd found them, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that they were going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so as we uh, looked at chapter 10, you know, we owe our salvation here in Crook County to Acts chapter 10, to the first Gentile that, re that received the gospel, that, that, that the Lord's grace went to the Gentiles as well. And that, you know, as the Jerusalem church heard about Gentiles or non-Jews getting saved, when they heard they've received the Holy Spirit and they got baptized. And here's what they said in chapter um, 11. Then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life as well. And that is a mark of a Christian, my friends, is have you repented of your sins? Just as Cornelius and his family did in Acts chapter 10. And once they did, we see that the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. There was no laying on of hands in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 8, there was. In Acts chapter 
before there wasn't. In Acts chapter 2, sometimes there's laying on of hands. Sometimes it's at a prayer meeting. Sometimes it's while the preacher is praying. The Holy Spirit baptizes us so that we can have boldness and power to go preach the gospel for Jesus. So they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, the early church. We're going to see that in the weeks to come as Blaine and Jeremy and Aaron take on those chapters. But then also, did you have the lens keep flicking down as we were reading those final chapters? The lens of baptism. Remember with the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch, what must I do to be baptized? And he says, uh, if you believe with all your heart, you may. But did you notice in the uh, Cornelius account, it was people who were filled with the Holy Spirit that were baptized with water. And so today, we just open up the waters of baptism and say, hey, if you've repented from your sins and you've come to the Lord Jesus, he's filled you with his spirit this morning. Have you been baptized yet since you believed? Since you believed. And the tragedy of a church that oftentimes doesn't read the book of Acts is that you have people saved for five, ten years. That's a decade, by the way. Fifteen years, twenty years, and they've never been baptized. And maybe you're here today, and you're a Christian. You've been born again. And you would say, you know what? My life, it just doesn't seem like it's as powerful and exciting as what I'm reading about in the book of Acts. I don't feel like I'm as obedient as the people in the book of Acts. I don't feel like I'm as on, as on fire and bold and fervent as the people in the book of Acts. I would ask you today, have you been baptized with water, first of all? It's the first step of obedience, a child of God. Maybe today would be your first step of obedience that would lead to many other obedience steps. Second thing I would ask, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Since you believed, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? We're not going to lay hands on you or anything. We're just gathered together like the early church in one accord. And you can just ask today, Lord, baptize me with the Spirit. Just pour yourself out upon me that I could be bold and brave and courageous to take the gospel to the world. Pour yourself out upon me. And as I read in the book of Acts, it seems that when you do, you give gifts in incredible measure to be able to help be useful for the church. And so we're going to just open up the baptism waters as we close in a song or two. I know one person's getting baptized and maybe today you would come and join them and um, you can certainly hug them but then maybe also you yourself would be baptized today. Come to the waters as we close out today. In Jesus' name.